Welcome to Creative Engineering. This is our second podcast. With me, I have my co-host Norbert. How have you been during the quarantine? Great, actually. It's been a uh, pretty productive week. Um, have been doing good progress on all my projects. How's it been for you? Doing pretty good. You know, just putting out that quarantine content, making videos, and it's a uh, pretty crazy i'm excited to go outside again whenever that will be so <laughs> sometime yeah all right so we have some uh follow-up items um first of all uh, did you know that uh, github is free for teams yes um i heard about it what exactly does it mean well as far as i can tell the all of the core github features are now free for everyone which is super cool because um i know that at least for me i have some private repos that you, you have in the past only been limited, I believe, like maybe three people or two people as collaborators. Mm -hmm. So now, no matter what, you can, you know, have as many people join, which is super cool, um, as well as, you know, creating organizations and have as many unlimited uh, private repositories. The question is, uh, if everybody starts on this, will it be free afterwards? And I'm guessing not, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, it's super interesting, like what happened since Microsoft's uh, quiet GitHub. Yes. Everybody thought it's going to go down and everybody was ready to switch to GitLab. And now GitHub is like the thing. Yeah, it's a, but it's also been really good too. I, I mean, I was paying for a GitHub pro subscription too, and even canceled it when they made it free. But then I went back to paying for it because, you know, not only do I get to support things, but I realized that if you're on the pro plan, you get like the beta features, which is super cool. So that's what mm -hmm. I've been using it for. So we have another thing on our follow-up, um, some just quick VR updates. Uh, I watched last night the Top Gun movie in 3D and big screen, and I got to say, that was one of the coolest things that I've watched in a while. I don't know how they did it, but they, they were able to take like an 80s movie and remaster it for 3D, and it was super cool. And what was neat about the big screen uh, cinema experience is the movie was like $5 here in the U.S., and it was in a retro theater. It was so cool. <laughs> so you were sitting in a VR 3D cinema watching an actual 3D movie. Yeah, yeah, it was, wow. it was pretty incredible. And then uh, yesterday they also, it's going on today as well, but um, they are doing some li a live music festival, which is super cool, hosted by LiveX Live. And that was really neat. Um, of course, you know, it just depends on the taste in music. And they didn't really pick a theme. It's like they went from a rapper to a really R&B and kind of like jazz band to then a DJ. Like all just back to back to back. And so there's like, it's just all these different artists. But it's a super cool new artist that I haven't even heard before. But now followed them on Spotify, which is cool. It's nice and how many people were there. Yeah, there was, uh, when I first joined, there was over 150 people just in the one room I was in. In one insane. place, like in yeah. one virtual, wow, that's crazy. Yeah, and it was pretty cool. It was funny. One of the hosts, uh, you could, you, they were both in quarantine, but one of the hosts on her webcam, you could tell she had bad internet because, like, the guy on the right <laughs> is like crystal clear and then she is like all broken up. <laughs> it's so funny. It was awesome. Yeah. And then, uh, last, I just wanted to talk about the new Fitbit song that came out. And, um, have you seen any videos about it yet? Yes, like I've actually seen your video about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. It is incredible. I I'm still sore from playing it. It is. I, I hope they make a whole music pack on it because this is the kind of stuff that I use VR for is to work out and to to really get your heart rate up. And man, it is. It'll wipe you out. 
Oh yeah, I'm super jealous. I am not yet able to try it out because I don't have my VR headset with me right now. Yes. But yeah, <laughs> definitely first thing when I have access to it, uh, I'll try that. <laughs> so CodePin supports Flutter. That's that was a surprise. Um, super interesting. Um, like as far as I um, understood, we already have DartPad. But CodePad adds this social layer onto all of that, being able to fork our people's uh, flower creations and just sharing all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Have you used CodePen before? I feel like I've seen it in blog posts, but personally, I haven't really used it. Um, I've used it for like experimenting with it for a bit. One thing which uh, code pen or dart pad um, could actually be pretty useful in the near future is when you're doing a workshop or something like that and people mm. don't have Flutter installed or don't have all that stuff there. Um, just being able to open up a website and doing all of this would be great. But the problem right now is it doesn't support packages as far as I know. Um, it only yes. has the built-in ones, um, which is pretty limiting if you want to use something like provider or other things you might be using. Well, you mean you can always just copy the entirety of provider and put it in the, the single file. <laughs> that sounds crazy. I like it. <laughs> yeah, speaking of which, I um, so in my Flutter editor last week, I have built a kind of a lexer, like a parser for Dart files. Mm -hmm. um, and it has triggered this crazy idea of, well, what if I take an existing Flutter project and have, if you just have pure widgets, meaning you don't have any packages, um, what if you just have a one-click export to Dartpad where it takes all of your classes and exports them to a single file and then, then you just have and it you know organizes all your imports at the top and then you have your main file so it's something I've been experimenting with and so far um, making good progress so we'll see um, so we can also talk about why CodePin doesn't support packages and that is because the Dart services API is what Dartpad and CodePin are built on top of are, are you familiar with that? Um, I haven't. Can you uh, tell a bit more about it? Yeah, so um, even my Flutter editor uses this uh, Dart Services API. What it is is a REST API to um, your code. So it, when you don't have the Flutter or Dart SDK installed, you can still use a REST API to pass in your code, and then you get like a list of you know, fix-it options or an, um, analyzer options. You can even do... Um, pass in an office offset and be like, okay, what are the auto completion results for this one area? Or mm. what are the fixes that I can apply? And you can format your code. And one thing I love it for is you can use the DDC compiler. So you can actually compile for Flutter Web or you can compile the release version, but that one takes a lot longer because it uses the Dart to JS. Um, and I even created like a simple example that you can now in my Flutter editor one click button it compiles your code and opens up a new window with your actual compile code that you can edit and do whatever with so i just i've been super fascinated with this api and the just the flexibility that it gives you for you know introducing these kind of dynamic widgets and having if you wanted to not saying you should but you could have a web view that you pass in a server-side rendered dart file <laughs> compile that and then show the rendered file <laughs> in your app Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Okay, wow. Yeah, talking about uh, Dart, Pad, Flutter, and Web, and all those things, um, do you have some sort of best practices for building 
apps, UIs for all those different platforms because just building a mobile app is one thing, but having code which works on all platforms without having a big mess is isn't that easy. Yeah, uh, for sure. Um, so I wanted to talk about you know this thing that I'm calling adaptive UI. Um, what that means really is that we build these applications, like you said, that have to run on different platforms where, you know, in one mode, they're running on mobile, another mode, they're running on tablet and another desktop. And if we're not careful, we're building this UI in such a way where, you know, it'll, you know, it'll look fine on mobile. And then we go to desktop and it just looks like an iPad version. Or if you <laughs> go to the desktop and then you come down to a website then it's like, oh, now it just looks like a desktop app. It doesn't look like a web app. Um, so we have to be, you know, very cognizant of when we're building these applications to make sure that it's not just the screen size we're targeting, you know, it's not just, okay, if we're past 720, we're on a tablet. If we're on 480, we're on a mobile because breakpoints are not everything. Um, what, what have you done in the past to make sure that you, your apps are responsive, you know, on different layouts? Like, uh, have you built an app yet that goes to mobile and desktop? Yes, definitely. Like most of um, my apps nowadays um, are built in some sort of responsive way because I use desktop heavily and mobile. Mm -hmm. um, so different things like first off, sometimes you just have two very different layouts. Like for desktop, you might have some sort of sidebar or something on mobile. You might have that on the on the view. Um, there, I just have two build methods or two different functions widgets, which just have uh, different um, layouts, but still use the same components. Like all they do is instead of using a column, maybe they might be using a row. Also for me, um, just using constraint box a lot, like setting the max width and stuff like that. So one thing that uh, looks very um, weird in my opinion is when the button stretches um, across all the surface, like on mobile, it's fine if the button is uh, um, the full width because it's not that big. But on desktop or web, it looks rather weird if you have a button yeah. which is bigger than whatever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or, or for example, like when you show a snack bar and you're on desktop and it shows the entire <laughs> bottom width of the, the bottom. Yes. Yeah, it's, um, it, you know, but it's one of those things that, you know, it's amazing how many components that Flutter gives you. But if we're not careful, you know, just because you're using the stock components doesn't mean you get an adaptive UI out of the box. So you definitely have to be aware of how to build it. What are you usually using or what are you usually doing to uh, solve this problem? So for me, I, I have a builder pattern uh, similar to you, but I use a layout builder at my top uh, of my build method, wherever it's like, you know, the, the parent that then defines the child size mm -hmm. so i i looked in the constraint box but that that's more like on the individual screen and widget level this is more yes. like kind of on the layout level yes what i do usually is so there's the two approaches you can take you can do the naive approach of just like returning the tablet version and then the mobile version which is pretty bad in my opinion because then you get like a lot of duplicate ui code mm -hmm. but the thing that i do is i create an adaptive list for example like a master detail um if you're mm -hmm. coming from ios is like the master detail controller and then what you're doing is you're just passing that selection up the tree to when you click on an item in the list you're just not doing an action immediately you then send it up to where the widgets being used and then you take an action so on a tablet it'll just update a selection and on mobile it'll navigate to the new screen what's cool about this is you don't have to have two separate list views you don't have to have your tablet list view and your desktop list view and your mobile list view 
Interesting. But then it also um, gives you the flexibility that you can use this widget wherever you want. So if I wanted to embed it in a search screen, I could then use the same screen as a selection context. So I could then push to the screen and then based on the selection, I could pop back and you know do whatever I want with it. Yes, and it also makes uh, sharing code much easier. Like I could uh, imagine a package which implements a couple of uh, adaptive UI components. For example, a scaffold which has a sidebar or something else mobile. I think you've been doing something like that on your mm -hmm. YouTube, YouTube channel, haven't you? Yep, sure have. Yeah, I built a adaptive scaffold for Flutter that uses the new navigation rail, um, as well as when you're on a mobile device, it'll use the bottom tabs. So it's it's really nice to be able like layout with navigation is one of the first thing people start to duplicate because mm -hmm. when you have these different modes, you have bottom navigation bar, you have navigation rail, you have a drawer, you have top tabs, you, you have so many mm -hmm. different ways to do navigation <laughs> on all these different sizes. And it's like, if you're not careful, you're going to just like duplicate all this stuff. And, you know, if you keep it in a one context and you share it, you know, you don't have these weird states. Like, so think about in the previous example, if you return a tablet version, a mobile version, if you mm -hmm. do something on the tablet version and then resize down to mobile, you're actually in a new state. You don't have mm -hmm. the same state as the tablet screen. So then you go back to the tablet size, you're back on your tablet state, you go to your mobile size, and you have your mobile state. You could be 300 items down on the mobile version and then 500 items down on the tablet version, and they're two separate lists. Interesting. Yeah, and also yeah. feel like your approach is very flurry-like because it yeah. uh, encourages the encapsulation. You don't want to do all these different components. All you want to do, you actually want to have this one component which just takes care of the thing it's supposed mm -hmm. to take care of. Yep, exactly. Um, so speaking of that, I also want to talk about platform UI because um, when building for devices, um, I know I'm building on Mac OS, but you're building on Windows. And mm -hmm. so what kind of things do you do to make sure that the user feels at home on a Windows device, uh, whereas I would do something that feels at home for Apple devices? First off, I try to separate or not make the app look like a upscale mobile app. Like <laughs> um, app bars are great, um, but I try to avoid them uh, um, in Windows versions because um, most most apps don't have the app bar with the back button and stuff. Um, so that's one thing I usually do. Um, just just the little things like not having components which um, benefit, uh, which people benefit from on the mobile version because they have limited space, but instead use something which actually uses the space that is available on desktop. Um, but yeah, I still feel like there's a lot to lot lot of work to be done. Um, on all those components to make a web version or a, a desktop version truly feel like a desktop application. Do you use any Fluent Design? That's the Windows design language. Do you oh, try to use that? Actually, I, I don't like I don't like that design language too much. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And there, there aren't too many apps on Windows who actually use that design mm. apart from Windows itself. And even Windows is not using that <laughs> every application. Um, so basically just, just um, building, like I feel like the trend um, from adapting to each platform to having a unique brand which works on all platforms is becoming stronger and stronger. I feel like nowadays you don't actually want to adapt too much to each platform and have your app look completely different on each device, but instead right. have your own language and adapt to the small nuances you have on the device, like the overscroll on iOS, the um, 
top or status bar on Mac OS, how it's, how it's called. And mm -hmm. just doing those is, I feel like, a better way to approach this. Yeah, I agree. The nuances is what make the difference, um, especially when you think about, you know, on iOS, you want to build switches and sliders and loading indicators that are this Cupertino style, but then you don't necessarily want, you know, list tiles or scaffold to be, you don't have to have a Cupertino scaffold. Uh, by doing it in this way, it allows you to make it feel at home, but not obtrusive and you still get to stick to your brand. Yes. Also, one thing that's another easy win when you're building this in an adaptive way is, well, what about when you show an alert? This is a, like a perfect example of um, using an iOS alert style because a user expects a certain alert to look some a certain way. Or when they're picking a date, you want to show the Cupertino date picker. Or when they are picking a time, you want to show like the timer in the bottom sheet. But then on macOS, you do macOS way of doing it. and. And almost always, I think the first thing that you can do is don't develop a touch in mind on desktop because there's so many things that you do on desktop that you can't really do on mobile and vice versa. So, you know, you don't want to show a bottom sheet that you can drag things around in on the bottom. You mm -hmm. don't want to have things that you have to move around and slide on desktop. But on mobile, you do. And that's just all about building widgets that kind of adapt depending on which version they're on and show different input methods based on that. Um, next, I want to talk about, you know, well, how do you approach dark mode? Because this is something that recently has become really popular in an official way, because mainly because Apple and so many other platforms now give you a dark mode option on your computer or phone now where it'll change everything. Um, are you talking about actually adapting it for the platform or just the theming itself? The theming. Um, well, first off, just setting the brightness to dark um, goes a big way. Um, like most of the time, the app actually looks pretty good. And most components um, at least try to um, adhere to the dark versus bright mode uh, specs. But yeah, I'm not sure. Like most of the time, just setting it to dark goes a long way. What, mm -hmm. what are you doing? Well, I remember the first time that I had an app that I'd been working on for a while and then wanted to support dark mode and then half my app was invisible because all my text was black. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to, had to go through and make my text adaptive to where, you know, it can adjust its color based on the theme. But beyond that, I have been, you know, there's certain like subtleties that you have to do, you know, where a color may be a slightly yes. different color on the dark mode versus the light mode. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you want to have like darker colors that aren't as bright. You don't want to just blind the user when you go to dark mode as well as, you know, there's, there's just other nuances, but like, you know, elevation is different. D shadows ap appear differently, That's but true. flutter, for example, does a really good job of providing that all for you. And even now on the latest, we have a theme mode option inside of Material App, so you can actually switch between light, dark, and system setting, which is super cool, where, as before, Ooh. you used to have this weird logic to do it. Interesting, I didn't know about that. Like, one thing um, which I had um, been problems with just today was um, buttons. Like, mm. do you know about a way to change the text color of a button, button according to the color which it is on? Like. I, I m more often than not, I'm actually fighting the theme data and trying to figure out in which slot to put it stuff. And embarrassingly, often I just end up hard coding or not hard coding, but putting the color into the actual text because I just can't find out how to configure my app theme accordingly. 
Um, do you also have some issues or problems with the theming in the top level component? Well, speaking of a solution for your problem, there is a really cool helper method that the theme data uses under the hood, which is called estimate color for brightness. And mm. you can pass in this option and it'll give you whether it's, or it's maybe estimate brightness for color. And so then you can pass in a color and it'll check to see if it needs to be a light or dark brightness to show the text. I think this is what they use under the hood in a lot of different places. But Interesting. Yeah, yeah that, that for me has been pretty helpful. Um, I, so some other things that I run into when designing for theming is the first thing that I did was you know, shaping. Sometimes like things look fine. Like a card, for example, looks great on light theme and then dark theme. It just looks kind of awkward. Like, like the shadow is a little bit better. Like with the latest stuff they've added, it's so much better. Whereas before, like it, it was weird having the dark shadow and then it almost, it just didn't look out of play. It just looked out really out of place. So what I usually did was on the dark theme, I would create a card theme that would just have a border outline that was like a light gray. And that usually looked a lot better for me personally. Mm, interesting approach. Yeah. Yep. Um, so another thing too is our devices and our screens are and specifically applications are getting used in places that we don't even realize. Speaking of which is, you know, we have passive modes now. It's crazy that our application can exist in a voice-only context <laughs> where we're not even touching our device and um, building experiences for that as well as, well, you, th you may think, well, I'm building a mobile application. I never have to worry about that. But what about when someone is disabled and they can't see your application? You still have a mobile app and you still need to support accessibility um, to allow them to be able to communicate with your app in a semantic tree style to say, you know, with a screen reader. So what are, you, what are your thoughts on that? Mm, so I haven't been doing digging too deep into the semantics and all that stuff, but as far as I know, Flutter is actually doing a pretty good job out of the box, mm -hmm. um, providing um, most of the semantics tree, like annotating text and doing all the layout things, the lists. Um, so as far as I know, Flutter out of the box does a pretty good job at um, providing all of this. And it should be pretty easy to enhance that. Like there are a few properties, for example, on the image thing, which uh, I'm not sure what it's called, but where you describe the content. Mm -hmm. And if you just pass in the string describing the image, the screen reader can automatically um, read out the, the image and say what is on there. Um, what have you been doing with accessibility? Yeah, for me, I, I have a Tesla app that I built and one of the ways that I wanted to give an input for users that have a hard time seeing it is I built a chatbot. So working with Dialogflow, I was able to take all the actions that I was doing on my car and put them in a conversation setting. So then you could say, you know, set my car AC to 30 degrees or, you know, turn unlock the doors, you know, and then also turn on sensory mode and unlock the frunk or whatever. And what's cool is it will take each of those commands and trigger them in a way and feedback and, you know, talk back to the user, uh, which I think is really cool because even if you can't like press the buttons, you can still just open up a, the voice button and just be able to communicate with the car. So 
um, other than that, yeah, I think Flutter does a really good job with the semantic tree and um, just taking advantage of that. Like, so a simple thing that you can do to optimize for that is if your widget is like really weird, then wrap it with like a tooltip or some kind of um, message label for that, as well as whenever you're using a button or anything that takes the option tooltip or um, I can't remember what the other option is, but it allows you to you know, define what that is. This would be like the equivalent, like on the web when you have an alt text for someone who can't see an image, um, mm-hmm. which is really cool because, you know, your button, instead of just being like, oh, this is my info button because they were using the info icon is you can say exactly what that button's doing under the hood. And as a bonus, when you're on desktop, if you hover over that button, it'll tell you what that button does um, on the hover effect. Yes, I've seen that before. Yeah. Um, and then finally, you know, there's also just, uh, so many wearables that we have now. I know Flutter doesn't uh, support Apple Watch or anything yet, but I think it does support Android Wear. Am I correct on that? I think my brother actually tried to compile for um, the watch, which was supposed to be possible, but I'm not sure whether he was successfully uh, able mm. to do so. But in theory, it should be possible, but I haven't actually seen a Flutter app on the watch myself. Um, but I'm still pretty sure it's possible. So we'll have to have to look at this in some future episodes, definitely. At least when it comes to Apple Watch, I'm super excited because it's just, it's one of those things that, you know, you think you have responsive design, like try making it go down to a two inch size or smaller. And it's like, there's so many things you have to do differently. And um, I'm excited for when that becomes, you know, a whole lot more popular. So we've been talking about, you know, this, this adaptive way to build your UI, but how does Flutter work like under the hood? So Flutter um, does a very good job at um, abstracting all this away. Like you could have a widget, which we talked about before about this adaptive thing, which just works on all, on watches, on desktops and mobiles. Um, But internally Flutter is actually doing a lot of work to abstract, things like state management, not having to keep mutable references to objects, not having to deal with stuff like you have to do on um, Android where you have to actually mutate views um, in order to change them. Just providing this uh, reactive interface for a programmer to program um, objects in. I actually did a talk a couple of months ago on Flutter Europe about uh, render objects the talk was uh, called Flutterware widgets, elements, and render objects. Um, basically, um, showcasing, exploring how the internal um, framework works, um, what what render objects are, what elements are, and how all of those work together. Yeah, so I would definitely love to hear more about that. Maybe we can have a full episode on that. But um, yeah, so have you? Have you found that you needed to go down to the render object layer to build stuff, or have you been mostly able to stay at the widget level? Because I know sometimes I have to go down to custom painter and do something on the canvas, but um, how often do you actually have to go down and do, if someone's starting with Flutter, do they even need to know how it works? Well, most of the times you don't actually have to go down. Like for a beginner to intermediate, or like even an expert wouldn't have to need uh, the knowledge for render objects most of the times. But sometimes I um, still find myself going down there, for example, when um, looking at weird behaviors. Like I remember I had this um, thing um, where I had a stack 
um, and I painted things outside of the stack bounds, um, which was because I was doing some sort of weird scrolling and uh, zooming. Um, but the thing was, those widgets which were drawn outside of the stack bounds didn't receive pointer events. And that was because in the render stack, it had a check if the pointer was outside its own bounds. Um, without that check, it worked perfectly. So because I knew render objects, I was able to go in there. Basically, what, what I did is I copied over all of the stack class and called it my stack and removed that if check. Um, and I had a stack which received pointer outside. And yes, sometimes you, you just uh, have to go down there and and for, for very custom or very weird behaviors, it's super interesting. But also just understanding that there's more than just widgets, um, that there's render objects, that you can do context.off find render objects, and most of the time cast that to a render box. And using that render box, you can access the size and the position, which is super helpful if you, for example, want to do um, um, in a callback, show some sort of inf information um, which is sitting on top of a widget. Using the context and the render object, you can actually locate that widget on the screen and display information accordingly. There's so much. I mean, we could talk about this for <laughs> multiple episodes. <laughs> Going into a different direction. How is this podcast actually hosted? So that's a funny story. Uh, when we first started with this, we were thinking, you know, we wanted to do this podcast, give it out to the community, but we wanted to see if we could build it in a way that, um, first of all, it's cheap because we're first starting out, but also uh, in a way that is really engaging. So right after we released the first episode, I created a podcast player in Flutter to host our own podcast, which is pretty <laughs> crazy. So... Exception. Basically, the, yeah. <laughs> Basically, the whole concept is we're using a GitHub repo, which then um, hosts our podcast, which is a compiled Flutter application to GitHub pages, which is free. And we have an RSS feed, which is inside of there, as well as each of the episodes are small enough, um, since they're you know rendered to MP3, can be stored inside of the web folder. And then when you're doing this and you compile it out, you can actually static link to each page and each podcast episode. And it works great. Our episode is now on, you know, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and we're not paying anything. We can always pay for a custom domain later, but if you want to, we'll have the links in the show notes, but you can actually open up the podcast player and listen to each of our episodes. This is actually running on Flutter Web using the latest audio players plugin to be able to allow you to play audio on the web, which is super cool. And, you know, just implements a bunch of, um, you know, RSS parsing and stuff like that, which we are actually open sourcing. So if it's not out by the time that you see this episode, it will be in the future, but we will open source the podcast player so that you guys can build your own podcast or just see how audio and Flutter web works together. Yes, and we'll also probably um, work on improving the podcast player and eventually have a full-blown thing which um, is super cool to see and it's all for a web like it's all for this podcast app could also work on mobile on desktop and in this case on the web yeah i so speaking of this i i have actually been doing flutter and audio for quite a while now i built this flutter midi plugin a while back and i think i think flutter is really cool for you know having this interaction model where you can build this awesome ui but have the audio extracted out i don't know when i first started with flutter the first thought was like how cool would it be if you could build like a vst in flutter or build like an audio daw in flutter because like, um, are you familiar with those at all 
I haven't heard both those yeah. terms before. <laughs> so basically what a DAW is, is a digital workstation and uh, VST is just an instrument that um, runs um, in a desktop form. It's usually built on top of um, C++ or something else and it's just a synthesizer basically. Mm. But what's cool about that is they, a lot of those have really bad UI and they're usually really old. What's cool about Flutter is we can write our UI in a way that doesn't depend on whatever platform it's running on and have mm -hmm. the audio context be the backing for that plugin. Um, for example, you can actually use Flutter and audio with Rust and there's a really cool package out there for Rust. It's like the best one and you can just call into it with FFI. You can play any kind of sound object. You can control the length and it's really neat. There's the audio players package and, you know, of course it's, you know, evolving and growing all the time, but I, I've just been really fascinated with how powerful Flutter is when it comes to, you know, not because the framework and the UI is not the same and because you don't have to be on iOS and have to map to iOS widgets because it's that case, you could build UI that runs on Raspberry Pi, for example. And I think that's really cool mm. because you can just focus on building the UI first and then add in the functionality as you need, depending on where it's running. Yes. Wow, that sounds super interesting and powerful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> are, are you planning to work on something like this in the future? I'm working on fleshing out this MIDI plugin for Flutter. I want to have it as a full scale, um, you know, in terms of feature parity with other MIDI plugins. For example, like right now I use it for the, the Flutter piano that I created, but uh, when it comes to MIDI and Flutter, there's so many things that you have to do. Like not only do you parse the MIDI or play individual notes, you then also have to control like the sound of the synthesizer, which synthesizer it's using, all the different channels. You can have a polyphonic mm. synth, a regular synth, um, as well as sometimes you just want to sample. And it's like, it's a never ending project, but one thing I'm looking into is building the core part of it in Rust because there's a lot of really cool MIDI and audio plugins. Compile that down to, um, I guess it would be WASM for web, and then we would probably just use a regular uh, shared dynamic library for FFI. And then my mm -hmm. plugin would just wrap around that. What's interesting is um, it's not really, you know, in the, the Dart land. It's all in the audio. I mean, it's all in the... Um, native land but what's what's neat is especially with dart you can actually generate ffi bindings and do all this different layer to where the user may not even know or care where the library is written um, but for me it allows me to only have to write the plugin once in rust and of course i've been also having to learn rust as part of this process so i've been going through the rust book and that's been uh kind of crazy because it's such a low level language and you know, having to learn about what pointers are and how it all works <laughs> together. And it's pretty insane, but I got to say like the book for rust is one of the best books that I've seen for documentation. It is really, really good. Um, have you ever looked at it? Yes. I've actually looked at trust a couple of months ago and read the book, the first chapters and yeah, it was a super, super fun experience. I, I remember like, yeah, like Rust is such an interesting language. It it combines this low-level um, thing with 
a very uh, dynamic and high-level language. Like you have all these things that um, a modern, a new language uh, would have, but you also have those pointers and all that stuff. But yeah, it's also super, like the concept is quite different with uh, borrowed pointers and the compilers just wrecking your program every time you do something. But <laughs> once the program is running, it is running. Yes, yeah, it's uh it takes a while to get the first thing to compile, but once you're there it's like yay. <laughs> and and uh but it's it's a cool approach to programming, but it's also can be frustrating when you just want to get something up on the screen and it's not working. Yes. <laughs> it feels like uh back in the days when I first started programming and it just didn't compile and was like, "Oh my god, what is happening?" And now I'm like, "Of course it doesn't compile. The syntax isn't wrong." Uh the dynamic type or the the uh, generic type isn't working but with rust it's like what does that mean <laughs> yeah <laughs> let me go pop out my textbook yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's it's insane have you um used ffi with flutter yet i like, have you what's your experience with been with that yes i've used it and um, pretty great actually like um it took me a bit to figure out how to use Rust and compile to the CABI and do all those things that they don't mangle the file names and don't remove stuff. But once I figured it out, and it actually wasn't that hard, <laughs> it worked mm -hmm. pretty well. Um, what I'm still um, struggling with when I use this and I still have to learn and look into is all those type conversions, like just mm -hmm. going from Dart types to rust types like just going from a string from dartland to rustland isn't that uh, easy because well how is the string encoded how what where's right. the pointer stored who's freeing it who's who's taking care of it it's like all those things you've never thought about in a la language like dart you now have to think about yeah well, especially like the first time i worked with c++ i was like wait you mean string is just not like a standard lib and it's just an array <laughs> of characters <laughs> you know like yes. it's crazy and then you start to think about like Think about all the times in your code, which like for me, I naively just concatenated a string instead of using a <laughs> string builder. And if you're not careful under the hood, you know, that's just like a really bad use case for, you know, having to reallocate an array size, which can in binary can be really bad because it's a, you know, mm -hmm. O of N operation. But then if you use a string builder, it's a whole lot easier to then and memory efficient to be able to concatenate strings. And that's why it's always recommended. But yeah, I think there was a Dart Summer of Code project that was out for specifically targeting, you know, generating this um, conversion so you can take a header in and it'll generate all the FFI bindings for um, converting to Dart objects, if I'm correct, yeah. Yes, I've seen it. I'm looking forward to whoever's uh, yeah. doing that. So, <laughs> yeah, if you're listening, we have you have our support. So, yes, <laughs> yeah, I I am pretty excited to see all the stuff happening with it because I mean, when you do the performance comparisons between FFI and a platform channel, even the binary platform channel, it is incredible how fast it is just to call right into FFI, to just call right into the lib and I don't know. I'm pretty excited about that. And even, I don't know if you've worked with this yet, but like you can actually compile your Rust code for WASM. And, you know, since Flutter Web supports anything that can run on the web, including HTML and J JS, WebAssembly is officially supported in the browser. You can just call right into that WASM library. And um, I built an example, which I will link in the description, but you can actually, I built the counter application, but the counting computation is actually done in Rust, which is compiled into WASM. And it's incredibly fast. 
So I'm excited to see what kind of stuff you can do there because you could build all kinds of stuff. You could build like a 3D program. You could have a compiler. You could <laughs> do whatever you want because WebAssembly is uh, pretty incredible. Possibilities are endless. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, what are you working on at the moment? Um, right now, like last week in the episode, I talked about how I wanted to get back into things online again, blog posts and all that stuff. I don't want to have something <laughs> concrete just yet. But uh, let's say it like this, I'm working on stuff and there's going to be stuff from me in the near future. Um, nice. What about you? Yeah, for me, I'm continuing to make progress on the Flutter editor. I have had such a hard time getting my sidecar for Tesla app released to iOS. I have tried so many times. Apple keeps rejecting it because my name, they're trying to say, is uh, intellectual property. So they're trying to say that I don't have the rights to make a Tesla app. So that's been fun. I've been trying to change the name and remove anything I possibly can. So we'll see. It's working great on Android, though. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I actually have been thinking about releasing it for macOS first and then seeing if they if they accept that and then if they reject on iOS, be like, well, you, you approved it on macOS. So <laughs> we'll see. Um, yeah. And then also, you know, just uh, getting all this podcast stuff set up and as well as just working on a ton of other various projects, um, continue to make videos, like you said. And um, it's, yeah, it's been really fun. I enjoy doing this podcast because we are able to take these ideas and stuff that we talk about and go in depth in a way that we can't really do in other forms. Like it's it's hard to go in depth on a render objects in a 10 minute video. So yeah, it's, it's cool to be able to talk about things here. Um, so if you want to find us, our link to the podcast is down below. We have links to iTunes, Google play and Spotify. So make sure to follow us on all those, make sure to give us a review and look forward to the next episode. Thank you. Thank you.